Hello there and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Geraghty. On today's episode, we welcome back Samuel Hulick, founder of User Onboard. Samuel is a UX and strategy consultant who's been focusing on user onboarding for over a decade. He's the author of The Elements of User Onboarding, and readers of Intercom's books will know him as a guest contributor to Intercom on Onboarding as well. In today's episode, Samuel is back to talk to us about his new podcast, Value Paths, and to give us the lowdown on the latest trends in onboarding and customer engagement. He talks about how value paths differ from traditional product design, as well as sharing his three pillars for healthy, sustainable growth. It's a really interesting listen, so let's head over to the studio. Samuel, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. Before we get into it, for new listeners, could you give us a bit about your background? You started out as a user experience designer. I, I actually started as a full stack developer and wound up huh. uh, back in these days. This was like over 10 years ago. Back in those days, the developer would like get like a Photoshop file that had all of the different interface elements. And it was basically just my job to make it clickable. And there were a lot of times that I would find myself coding things that I didn't really believe were ultimately going to serve the end users. And therefore, were also not really going to serve the business business that was supposed to be providing help to the users. And so I thought, I need to fix this. I'm going to learn as much about user experience design as I can, and then come in further upstream in the decision-making process. And my quest continues. I, I have a background in user <laughs> experience, and uh, I still really care a lot about making sure that the offerings that we provide are actually things that resonate with what the users are looking for help with, and ultimately really place an emphasis on on caring about whether we're we're helping people be successful with those or not and trying to improve our success rate over time. And so now you've launched like a brand new podcast called Value Paths. So what's it all about? And also I'd love to hear about the the framework the title is named after. So Value Paths is a growth framework for providing healthy growth in our terms or 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 growth without the hacks we don't believe in a dynamic where you create a product that theoretically could be valuable to people and then you create a business model predicated on selling people access to that product and whether they get value out of it or not is kind of up to them we think that that leaves a lot of opportunity on the table and frankly speaking a lot of revenue on the table so from our perspective, Value Paths looks at what are the main beneficial outcomes that people are pursuing in their lives that causes your offering to become relevant to them, and how can you design your offering to integrate into the timeline of what they're doing as much as possible to make it as likely as possible that they actually reach a point of success, which should be also correlated with better customer behavior, such as higher conversion rates, better retention, faster CAC payback, things along those lines. So how does value paths differ from traditional product design? So the way that we see traditional product design is following a what I would roughly call like an, an industrial design paradigm, where you design something once and then in the industrial example, you would mass manufacture the same thing over and over again. And then from a, a logistical standpoint, you would 
maybe drop ship these things that you had mass manufactured and create ads that drive interest in them and and then hope that people go out and you, there's a, a kind of a, a consumer goods kind of a mind frame. And the way that we look at product and software differently from the traditional product mindset is that we're not trying to create a product that is imbued with quote unquote quality and quote unquote value. We're recognizing the fact that every time somebody uses a product, it's because of other external factors that they're trying to resolve. And the more that we can create digital offerings that help people coordinate their efforts around reaching the outcomes that they desire, that's really the name of the game. And that the quote unquote product that we're offering is really just a proxy for that. So what we find right now is that there are a lot of software products out there that are serving user needs, but you don't know exactly which combination of needs are really driving revenue. Mm. And therefore, it makes it really difficult to be able to scale. It's harder to acquire people if you don't know which needs are driving revenue. It's harder to retain people if you don't know which needs are driving revenue, so on and so forth. And so for us, it's, it's not just a question of identifying those needs and designing for them, but also measuring them, being able to tell when people come to us, are they looking for X, Y, or Z? And of the people who are coming to us looking for help with why, A, how many people are there? Like, is this 5% of our user base or 90% of our user base? And then also, regardless of the quantity, how effective are those different segments? So if we're looking at people who are coming for X, Y, and Z, regardless of how much the distribution is between those, we can also see how likely they are to convert or to remain customers or, or what the lifetime value of segment X versus segment Y is. And that gives us a lot of information that we can make some much better decisions around because right now what we see a lot of the biggest product and growth decisions being made by are executives who are handing down growth mandates from on high where they're telling their product team, here's a 12-month roadmap, go execute it. Or maybe a chief revenue officer is saying there's some sort of correlation between day seven engagement and, and long-term retention. So mm. growth team, this quarter, we want you to go and, and just try to do what you can to pull the levers to increase day seven engagement. But we know that nobody is coming to a product so that they can engage with it on the seventh day. We know that that's just like a fundamental misalignment of, of the incentives that are driving the engagement to begin with. And so for us, it's a question of how do you align those incentives and how do you do it in a rigorous uh, and, and scientific kind of way where you're able to actually empirically tell not only that you're getting better at, at helping people arrive at important outcomes, but that getting better at helping people do that is also providing a positive impact on your business. And like I, I love that, and and I've heard you say before about you know start your designing where your users start using you know with the great example of video games, which I think is a really good kind of explanation. I wonder if you would mind kind of explaining that one. Sure. Well, I think that the 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 essence of that is that you really need to meet your users, or in the case of video games, players, but the the, the recipients of your offering, you need to meet them where they currently are that anytime somebody reaches for a video game or a B2C app or a B2B SaaS offering or any sort of digital good, quote unquote, they are seeking 
some sense of resolution in their life. They are currently experiencing a situation that is motivating them to make some sort of change. The, the most basic way that I can describe this is if you think in terms of a light switch. The, the light switch is something that people engage with, but the reason that they're doing it is because they're trying to adjust the levels of light in the room. So mm. maybe you flick the light switch up to make the things visible, you flick it down so you can make things dark and go to sleep or whatever it is that you're trying to do with the light switch. But it's always because you're trying to change your external circumstances to the light switch thing itself. And in a similar way, when you're working with a video game, a SaaS app, whatever it might be, there's always some sort of external situation that is motivating people to engage with your offering in hopes that it will help them reach a different situation. And that's ultimately what we want to align around. And so when we say start your designing where your users start their using, it's really saying understand what it is that somebody is trying to do and seek to align the ensuing experience around helping them get there as much as possible rather than imposing your own timeline into their experience. So one, one concept that we really like to look at is the difference between the user's timeline and the company's timeline, mm. where if you're thinking in terms of your company's timeline, maybe the narrative is something like, it was just a couple scrappy founders with a world-changing <laughs> idea working out of their garage. And then then they got into an accelerator and, and then raised their seed round and Series A. And now we're growing like crazy and trying to get an IPO or whatever. And, mm. and you can think <laughs> of your company along that sort of storyline or timeline. And there are a lot of different components that go into it. There's thinking about how mature your market is and looking at the different features that your competitors are releasing and thinking about what your hiring plan is and what you can do with your engineering resources and when. And all of these things are very company timeline centric considerations. And we find that a lot of growth and product decisions get made more on considering the company's timeline and are done in a way that neglects the user's timeline where ultimately the user's timeline doesn't look like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'm, a, I'm an individual user and I, and I really care about this company starting from a scrappy idea and raising their seed round and going through their hiring plan. Like, yeah. they don't care. The user doesn't care about any of that. They are just saying, oh, I got to get a, a last-minute <laughs> plane ticket to Cancun so that I can <laughs> go meet my friend or something. Like, that's, that's their, their timeline. And so mm. for us, we're saying there are patterns to the user timelines that are driving people through the use of your product. And if you can identify what those patterns are of those bigger life events that are driving people to find your product to be relevant and organize your efforts around integrating as seamlessly as possible into their timeline, as comprehensively as possible across the entire timeline, that gives you a significant advantage over saying, we offer a access to a product that is theoretically valuable if you use it in the right way. And here it is and good luck. And one thing yourself and user onboard content editor, uh, Johan Kunders talk about on the show is the idea that what you're building, you know, is a path and the product is just one of many things on that path. And you kind of talk about this great example of, you know, mixing pancakes and kneading all the different you know, utensils to, to, to get there, you know, to get to that end point. 
Yeah, it's for us, it's a question of how do we, and this goes back to the user timeline and, and meeting them where they're currently at and very similar themes. Like the, the question really being, how do you help the user turn what they have into what they want? And when we use a, a really practical example, like making pancakes, the user might have pancake mix and we know that they want pancakes and they need to go through a choreographed sequence of actions that produces smaller changes along the way that ultimately converts the pancake mix into pancakes. So you need to get out a bowl and add water and mix the powder into the water and stir it around until it becomes a batter. And then you need to heat up a cooking surface and eventually pour the batter onto that and then wait until one side of it is cooked. And then you have to flip the pancake, which means that it involves using a spatula. And there are all kinds of different elements of making pancakes that need to come together at exactly the right time in exactly the right sequence in order for it to result in pancakes that somebody is actually going to want to eat. <laughs> and in a similar way, if your value proposition is like, save time and, and like hold better meetings at your company or, you know, get paid faster or big, vague value propositions. A, it's hard to tell when the user has actually gotten there. So it's, a, it's not really a discrete outcome that you can really coordinate your efforts and your users' efforts around. But B, it's also something where if you do have a discrete outcome that you can help people get to, it's amazing how much complexity is involved in even something as simple as like making pancakes. And so you extend that to you know, having your net 30 invoicing customers pay on time more frequently. It's, it's like, it gets very complicated very fast. And I think yeah. that, you know, to be totally truthful, the legacy that we have of traditional product design, which user personas and user journey maps and mm -hmm. even things like jobs to be done really is just kind of hand wavy toward that rather than diving into that complexity and saying, ultimately, we should be more familiar with this process than the users are because they're the ones who are coming to us for help with this. This might be the first time that they've made pancakes. So we shouldn't just be like, here's the batter, good luck. We should be coordinating their efforts in a way that helps guide them to the success that they're looking for because that's the way that we generate the revenue that our business needs to operate. So don't forget the spatula, the bumper sticker there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you mentioned like, you know, jobs to be done. How does Value Pass take a job to be done type thinking, you know, even further push it out my I, so i'm a big fan of jobs to be done i've been i've been quite a, a big fan since uh ryan singer introduced me to the concept i think probably like seven or eight years ago mm. and so our perspective on jobs to be done is not that we see ourselves as competing with it but more that we're building on it if i have any kind of criticism of jobs to be done it's that it is more of a mindset than a methodology there are a lot of times where people have the job to be done light bulb go off and they go, oh, oh, yeah, we're helping facilitate people arrive at outcomes and we're helping them work through processes. And that's the causal reason, not not just because they're 38 year old white male or something like that. And mm -hmm. moving away from demographics and things like that, I think, is a good idea. But the issue is that in practice, a lot of the frameworks or a lot of the the structure of jobs to be done as a practice has really been focused on how do you identify the jobs that people are trying to do so that you can better sell, market, and position your product. 
but still kind of leave your product untouched or, or assuming that that's kind of like a static component of the offering. Whereas to us, what's really interesting about jobs to be done type thinking is not this is maybe a different way we can put a spin on the same old thing, but this is a way that we can approach designing the offering itself to help people get through the job rather than just using it as like, hey, this thing is good for this thing, actually yeah. make it good for that thing and actively <laughs> invest in iteratively improving your performance in that thing. That's really where we come from. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. On the podcast, Value Pats, another really interesting area you look into is your three pillars for healthy, sustainable growth. Hat design, performance valuation, and beneficial outcomes. And each one has their own episode on your show, so there's a lot in there. But I was wondering if you could give us an overview of those pillars. Absolutely. So pillar one being path design, that is predicated on the idea that people are coming to you at point A in seeking help to arrive at point B. And the more that we can design our products to not be one size fits all UX static, industrially produced, design one, sell it again and again kind of products, but instead how we can think of them almost as scalable services that actually help people. Like if you're at the point, if you're making pancakes, you would want to present people with very different resources if their batter is unmixed and sitting in a bowl. You're like, yeah. this is time for you to go grab a whisk and start <laughs> stirring this. But if the batter is sitting on a griddle and the bottom half of it is cooked, then you know it's time to flip it and you want to be giving them a spatula. So in a, in a similar way, like in the movies where, where like a surgeon will just be like gauze, scalpel and like they reach out their hand to like for, for you know to be we want to almost be suggesting hey now's a good time to use gauze now's a good time to use the scalpel things like that right. so that's what path design looks at is how do we break down all of the different steps that are required to go from point a to point b and how do we create facilitating resources that help boost people along each step of the way so that's pillar one 
Pillar two is performance valuation, which is saying it's all well and good to want to design to make it more likely that people get from point A to point B, but there's really no point in doing that unless if we're actually measuring whether we're becoming more successful at doing that or not. Otherwise, we're really just flying blind and just making guesses that we feel good about and then moving on to other guesses that we feel good about and not really confirming that they're actually working. So the performance valuation part says, not only do we want to help people get from point A to point B, but when people are at point A and are seeking point B, we want to improve our success rate of actually getting them there. Kind of like your batting average in baseball or something along those lines. And so ultimately what we see is it makes more sense to invest your product and growth energy toward iterating toward helping users achieve success rather than iterating toward creating a more compelling feature set that theoretically could be more valuable or could produce more sales if the user decides to, to make full use of it. And so pillar three, beneficial outcomes, is saying, all right, in pillar one, we not only want to get better at getting people from point A to point B, and in pillar two, we want to be able to confirm that empirically that people are actually getting from point A to point B and that we're getting better at helping people get there. And one other thing I didn't mention is is also that you want to make sure that there's some sort of quantitative correlation to revenue. If you're helping people get from point A to point B and it has absolutely no effect on whether they become customers or not, it's probably not going to be a sustainable effort on your end. So you got to make sure it's a a win-win from both servicing the user's perspective and also being able to, to sustain your business and grow your business in its most important metrics. And then pillar three, beneficial outcomes, is saying, let's pick the right point Bs to begin with. Let's get really specific about what those patterns of outcomes that we find people are pursuing and that are causing them to find our product to be relevant. Let's be really selective about the ones that we invest in. Because doing path design takes a lot of effort. And being able to putting up the instrumentation to be able to measure whether people are becoming more effective at this thing or not takes a lot of effort too. It's it, even just analyzing the data takes a while. So you really want to make sure that you are positioning, you're setting up shop on motivation main street, as we call it, that you want to make sure in the same way that if you were creating a brick and mortar restaurant or something along those lines, you would want to locate it at a place that had a lot of foot traffic because that makes it more likely that you're going to generate passive customers rather than having them go out of their way to specifically go to your particular location. And in a similar way, we can think of the ideal location, but not in a geographic sense, but more in a temporal sense. Where is the Mm -hmm. ideal place to set up shop in the user's timeline? And at that point, Acquisition questions become a lot easier. Retention questions become significantly easier. And even just basic design decisions become easier. Instead of sitting back and being like, how do we make the perfect pancake mix? What's the exact right (laughs) granularity of the little, you know, like instead of trying to think of like what the platonic ideal of pancake mix is, just be thinking about like, whoa, we're losing a ton of people at the flip the pancake step. Maybe we should be providing them with spatulas or something because that's just where things are totally tanking out. So just getting clear on like, if you're a pancake mix company, the third pillar of beneficial outcomes is confirming that you're actually helping people make pancakes and not think that you're helping people do something that they ultimately don't want to do or that ultimately doesn't really correlate with revenue and driving your business. 
Absolutely. And so the last time you were on with us, it was it was a few years ago. Um, and I'm wondering what has changed in user onboarding in the meantime? Like what are some of the latest trends in onboarding and, and customer engagement? I think that the future of, of user onboarding is bright. And and unfortunately, despite my efforts, I feel like it has not come nearly as far as it should. User onboarding is a huge lever when it comes to, especially when we're talking about healthy growth and growth without the hacks, we don't recommend taking approaches where you know companies will come to us and say, we want to redesign our onboarding experience so that it's more effective at building habits. We really want to you know get people to the aha moment and then have them start building habits around our product where trying to get people addicted to your product is a very dicey proposition from a likelihood to succeed standpoint as well as a likelihood to be ethical standpoint. And so for us, it's much more straightforward to identify what the users are trying to do and then just simply organize our internal efforts around being better at helping them get there. So from an onboarding perspective, that is a major lever in being able to A, tell what people are trying to do when they are entering into your system or your offering or your product, and B, actively guide them to where they're trying to get to. And what that really comes down to, and what I've been pushing back on previously, even just in this conversation, is the idea of of a one-size-fits-all product experience, where, again, people come to us with the mindset of, how do we make a really good welcome tour that impacts our CAC payback and and, uh, activation metrics and conversion metrics and retention and so on and so forth. And I don't think that there's a welcome tour in the world that is going to be able to do that. But what I do think is possible is to create some early opportunities to gain insights into what the users are trying to do, which could be just by having a couple surgically placed questions that help us. Like if you if you go through the, the value pass process of the three pillars and you wind up with a particular outcome that you're like, we know that a, a plurality of users wants this. We know that they mm-hmm. want it bad enough to drive revenue if we can solve it effectively for them. And we can be able to tell when they want it then it's really just a question of saying, how do we adapt our product experience to not be one size fits all, but instead personalize around that particular segment of use so that we can put them on the fast lane to the success that they're trying to get from our product rather than take them on a tour of all of the different possible things that they could do with a product. And then usually, you know, most onboarding just kind of disappears after that. So I, I think that there's a ton of opportunity in the world of onboarding. And, and ultimately, it's a question of paradigm, where a lot of times when people are coming to us for help with their onboarding, they're thinking about their onboarding as how do we make a really good tooltip tour? Or should we include an intro video that points at different parts of the interface? Or should we use hotspots or coach marks or things yeah. like that? Or or even like, you know, what kind of lifecycle emails should we send? Or on what days? Or if we have a to-do list, what should that be composed of? And all of those questions become radically simpler when you're saying, let's just find some major patterns of outcomes that users are seeking 
and then be able to tell when a new raw signup is seeking that particular outcome and then clear the path as much as possible to help them get there to increase the likelihood that they succeed and therefore become better customers for us. So the difference between onboarding as in welcome tour versus mm -hmm. onboarding in help users more reliably become successful machine is, is very different. <laughs> and so for, it's for that reason that we were like, man, this is like onboarding is conceptually a bit of a pigeonhole for what we're talking about, because what we're talking about really is, is being able to provide transformation in the lives of your users and to be able to have your finger on the pulse of what's actually driving your business model. And so that's much, much grander of a chunk to, to bite off than just looking at your welcome tour. So for that reason, that's why we've been <laughs> presenting value paths as, as a growth framework instead. But if you blur the lines, I, I absolutely think that onboarding has a ton of potential and, and is severely under leveraged by the vast majority of companies out there. Well, just before we wrap up, I was going to say, you know, this is usually the point of the show where I ask people what's next and have they any big plans or projects for 2021. But this podcast is, is brand new. It's, it's just only a handful of episodes in the door. Yeah, what's next is is right now for us. We're, we're, <laughs> we're in the middle of what's next. Our current position on this is that my co-founder, Johan, and I feel that we, we've been doing a lot of work in this space for years now. And we are not claiming to have all of the answers regarding all of this right now. But mm -hmm. what we are claiming is to have identified an area that's a major blind spot for virtually every company in our industry. And so we don't say that we have all the answers, but we do feel like this is an area that deserves significantly more attention and significantly more rigorous attention than just saying, well, here are our personas and these are the goals that they have. And therefore, we're going to keep that in mind when we decide what composition of rectangles to present them on the screen. Like <laughs> to, to me, that, that approach just really doesn't make sense. So what we're doing right now is, is trying to explore this gap in people's awareness and trying to fill that gap with resources as much as we're trying to hand people spatulas and whisks, but we're also not <laughs> saying that, that it's that, that we officially know the best way to make pancakes per se. We're just, uh, we're doing our best to, to fill in a, what currently is a, a major hole in, in the thinking of essentially every company that we've come across. Yeah. Um, and then finally, where can listeners go to keep up with you and your work and where can they find Value Paths? Value Paths is conveniently located at valuepaths.com. So that one's pretty easy. And uh, you also mentioned useronboard.com, which is currently where the podcast is being hosted. But if things pick up steam, then we will be looking to make a transition over to valuepaths.com proper as the, the main home of it. So we're right on the cusp of that and it's exciting times. One other thing I would love to just put out there it, along yeah. the lines of having identified that this is a an oversight for, or, a, or a gap for people, but not necessarily having all the answers. One other thing we'd love to say is like, come on in. The water is, the water is great. Anybody who would like to come in and contribute to this or has felt like the traditional approaches to product design, marketing, UX, even jobs to be done, things like that have left them maybe inspired to do more, but not exactly knowing mm -hmm. how to go about doing that. Come help us build out this framework. The timing is perfect, and, and we would love any and all collaborators and feedback. 
And don't forget your spatula. And don't bring your spatula. (laughs) (laughs) Samuel, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. And I'm really grateful that you want to help spread the word. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Samuel Hulick. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps like-minded people find their way to our content. We'll be back next week with another great episode. We do hope you'll join us. This is Inside Intercom.